0: And welcome to the sixth episode of the Roots to STEM podcast, a podcast where we talk to scientists about the paths they've taken to get where they are today and the lessons that they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Steph Cady. In today's episode, we're talking with Billy Goolsby, who is a grad student in the O'Connell Lab in the biology department at Stanford. Billy studies how frog parents communicate to take care of their tadpoles. Billie is hard of hearing, and in this episode, we talk about how this has impacted her experiences as a scientist, as well as how we can make science more inclusive and welcoming for people of all abilities. Amongst other things, Billie also shares how she got started working in a lab in college, which involves licking ant butts, and some advice that she was given when applying to grad school that I think will be really useful for anyone thinking of applying or those of you who might be getting ready for interviews right now. Billie cracks me up, and I had such a fun time talking to her in this episode. I hope you enjoy And I hope you learn a little something along the way. Hi, Billy. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Okay, so let's start out with, can you first just tell us who you are, um, what your job or position is, and what your research is about pretty briefly? Yeah, so my name is Billy. I'm
1: a second year graduate student in the lab of organismal biology. Uh, my program is biology, and what I'm interested in studying is how parents work as a team to care for their offspring. Um, so this is actually something that we don't really know a lot about, which is, you know, how moms and dads are actually working together in understanding the needs of their offspring and then um, allocating tasks to care for them. And so To investigate that question, I'm using like one of the only species of frogs that pair bond and are monogamous. And so those are the ones I use to investigate this question.
0: Cool. So how did you first become interested in science? Um, So I became
1: interested in science Um, by looking at chemical reactions in high school. I should also clarify that I went to a rural high school um, in Fayetteville, Georgia. And so we had not many resources at all, Um, but like one of the favorite things I remember was um, in my chemistry high school class, we would have these chemical reactions and then like, it would just be a matter of like balancing them. And then I just remembered like how so much of science is just a puzzle piece. And then I think something that I also really loved about science was that not knowing the answer was sometimes an exciting thing. Mm -hmm. And so there was just always like being unsure about like, you know, what would happen if this is the case? And I think science loves that. Um, So I really got into that. And so right after high school, I didn't know what I was going to do in college. I, like, had no idea. I knew I wanted to get out of Georgia because I was like, I'm so sick of this. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I was like, I want to explore the world. I want to get out of, like, Little rural Georgia. So then I uh, went to school in Boston. Um, and so I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I loved science. So I was like, okay, I'll do the classic thing and be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, oh, I'm, I'm pre-med. And then I took my first calculus class and I made a C plus and I was like, this is not for me. Um, So, so when I came to college, I, um, I enrolled in a wise program, which was women in science and engineering. Mm -hmm. And so we got to tour labs for the first time. Mm. And so like, I got to see what a lab looked like um, from a graduate student who was just leading the tour. And so, we went into a sociobiology lab which I had never heard of like I was purely chemistry at that point point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was just studying like how ants work together and have these crazy social behaviors I mean ants are just like such an interesting model to study sociality in but I remembered thinking like oh I can still look at animals <laughs> I like hadn't realized that people like scientists still use animals. I thought like just with the knowledge that I had when I was in high school, I thought like people only did bench work. And like, that's the only thing that scientists did nowadays, because we knew everything we did about animals. And Mm. it was just amazing to me that we still like had so many questions about like the evolution of sociality itself. And I think that's why I really fell in love with like the fact that we can use you know, animals and a diverse uh, number of them to ask these questions that I had no idea. Um, we still could.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned that when you were in high school, you thought that science was like seeing people at the bench. And so I'm curious where you got that perception from. So like, what sorts of experiences did you have or in high school that like showed you what science looks like to you?
1: Yeah. I yeah. To be honest, I had no experience with science before that really Mm -hmm. like i i remembered watching like dexter's laboratory and being like oh this is how science works like (laughs) this it's just like running around and like pouring things in tubes and you don't know what's happening (laughs) and then i i and then i just like remembered like in high school we made i think aspirin and there's just like a sense of you know almost chaos I can't describe it but it's so fun and it's something that's so addicting in science so I was like oh like you know there's this creative part of it um but yeah I think it was just a lack of access to learning that like for example it it, from where I'm from a lot of students have like never seen a cow like it's just Hmm. so we're so removed from like wildlife and animal life and yeah people use animals that it's it's really rare and so You know, I just thought that we knew everything we did about animals and we were past that. And I, I had never even thought, I didn't know what neuroscience was until college. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I think it was just a matter of, I didn't know.
0: Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. So was this WISE program where you were seeing labs, was this like your first year that you were in college? Yeah. So I was a freshman. um, And so we got to see like
1: the, you know, animal behavior lab, um, like a cancer lab, and uh, something else that uh, probably a microbiology lab or something like that. Yeah. And I, that was an amazing experience. Because like, we just got to see everything in like these machines that I don't know what they do. But they're like two times my height. And I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> and then I Yeah, I remembered, when I went into the ant lab, the graduate student was like, oh, this is like a green Weaver ant. And if you lick its butt, it tastes like citric acid. And so like, we're like tasting these <laughs> ant butts and we're like, oh my God. And I'm like, is this what science can be? Because I love it. And then I like sent an email to the PI of that lab. And then like, i spent the first year not even really doing science, but just like enjoying watching people and doing husbandry. So taking care of the ants. And I was just like, this is amazing.
0: Yeah. So how, what sorts of things did you do in that lab? Like, were you working in that lab for a while after that point? Yeah, I
1: worked in that lab for four years. Okay. Um, Wow. And so, yeah. So the first thing that I was interested in was, um, So some species of ants developed agriculture millions of years before humans did. Mm -hmm. And so what's really cool about the species of ant is they also have these polymorphisms. So there's this really cool thing where all of these ants have the same genome. So they have the same DNA, but they look vastly different. Mm -hmm. And no one knows why that's the case. There's some work now, but no one knew why that was the case. And so part of what I was doing was like RNA sequencing and like just trying to see like what was diverged and differential expression between these like sisters Mm -hmm. because all ants in a colony are sisters and they're sterile females except for the queen. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, so I was just trying to see, um, you know, what was the difference? And so this lab uh, studied Primarily neuroethology, and no one had ever done RNA seq before except me and this graduate student that I was working with. Mm-hmm. And so, probably like the next year was just trying to figure out how to do RNA seq, which was like it's a love hate story for anyone who's like piloting RNA seq in entirely new species. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it was just like it's also fun to do science as a team. Yeah. And so, having a graduate student you know, and working together. And even if we were failing together, it still felt like it's a love hate story. Sometimes we're like, oh, I just want to get to the bottom of it. But then like, when you see that nice curve on the Nana drop, you're like, yes. I and it. I just like, <laughs> you're like, I finally did it. <laughs> so yeah, that was my first project. And then my second one was, I was really interested in, um, I'm really interested in, you know, sociality and like what it means to belong Mm -hmm. and what does that mean for animals with such a tiny amount of neurons. Mm -hmm. Um, So the next thing I did for the two years as an independent project was how do um, ants cope with isolation? And so like over the course of time, what's happening to their brains? And so, uh, um, you know, at different periods of time, what happens? And so this is actually something we're still in the process of writing up but it's something that's a little bit different from other really pro-social animals is actually they're quite resilient to it Hmm. um and so they can you know recover quite well which is actually uh similar to literature when there's like olfactory oblations um you know they are still able to maintain some level of sociality so it's just a really interesting look into that um so that's what i did was four years of you know really intensive ant biology and neuroscience.
0: Cool. Yeah. Okay. And so then you went right from undergrad to grad school, right? So, you know, how did you make that transition? Like, how did you know that was the right move for you? Yeah. So I
1: had a really amazing mentor, um, when I, a PI, when I was an undergrad, um, his name was James. And so I think something I, I, appreciated about James was he had a relatively small lab. So there were just three graduate students, me, um, and no postdocs. And he was also really old. He was, I think he was one of EO Wilson's first students, which made it quite nice because he knew so many people in neuroethology. And so I the first I told him I wanted to go to grad school and this is what I was interested in. And he told me well, do you want to do it in my lab and work with invertebrates? And I was like, no, I want to try vertebrates. Um, and so then I wrote a list of people I wanted to work with, and I brought it to James. And then he was like, "You should try Lauren O'Connell." And I was like, "Who is that?" And I he was like, "Oh, she works with frogs. Um, and I it was kind of this like, uh, effort where I was doing the reading and like trying to find the people I was interested in but he had also like known of people mm-hmm. through the grapevine that he was like I think these people would also be quite good fits for you mm-hmm. um and so you know kind of through a combination of both of those things um you know I found the list of people I wanted to work with but I was also terrified of emailing people um so I had written I, I can't believe he tolerated me through this. I had written this draft email. And then I was like, what do you think of this, James? And he was like, it's fine. just." It. <laughs> so I had met like probably eight faculty mm-hmm. um, before I even applied to be like, you know, what could I do in your lab? What's the fit? Um, and so, yeah, that made the process relatively easy. I needed a mentor for that part, though. I, mean, I you know, I had no idea, A, to email faculty before applying, um, and B, like, who always taking students? And so yeah. James was way more in the know than I was. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, that's such a frustrating yeah. set of unspoken expectations. So it's just like, oh, you should know to do this. And a lot of people don't, especially if you... Like, yeah, so like I took time off after undergrad, right? So I was just like working at a normal job and trying to figure out how to apply to grad school. I was like, I don't know how to do this. So I think I just like found it on the internet somewhere. <laughs> um, Yeah. Okay. So when you look back on like from, you know, high school, Billy through now, are there certain moments that sort of stand out in your mind where you we're like at a crossroads about deciding between pursuing one thing versus another or alternatively moments that happened to you where you're like, wow, like this is solidifying the fact that this is really what I want to do.
1: Yeah, I think, I think it was really a gradual thing okay. rather than like, you know, a significant moment. I mean, there were some moments where I like had to make a really hard choice Mm. like there was a time like I think when I was a junior in college I was dating someone for three years at that point and he knew I wanted to go to graduate school um and I had my heart set on the on Stanford and so he was like well if you choose like graduate school I'm gonna break up with you I just can't do the long distance and it was really hard but there were so many other things at play that I was just like okay then I'm gonna choose graduate school I there were moments like that Um, But I think, you know, it was a gradual process where I was like, oh, I'm happy to go to lab and like, oh, I'm happy to like answer these questions. And I'm excited to think about these questions. I think the question part is what got me the most excited about science, because Jane and I would just sit there and ask questions to each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that was like the favorite, which is something I also now enjoy doing in my current lab with Lauren, who's my PI which is just like sitting there and being like, do people know about this? I don't think so. Well, what if we investigated this? And it's it's one of my favorite parts about science. Um, it's just too. the thinking part of it. Yeah, yeah, for
0: sure. I feel like that is what I am best at. And then the actual execution on the experiments to answer the question is like <laughs> mediocre. <laughs> yeah. But I could go yeah. like the questions to fill 18 PhDs. <laughs> And I just yes. do finish the work, but maybe one day.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I have the questions. And then Lauren's like, what about the control? And I'm like, I don't want to think about the
0: control. <laughs> I know. It's like, ah, who cares? <laughs> no, but that's important. <laughs> but also, I yeah. what you were talking about earlier, I think it's easy for us to downplay like the role of our personal lives in our science right and so i don't want to downplay the fact that you had to make a big decision between like dating someone in graduate school you know like that's not a trivial yeah. thing um so yeah. yeah i don't know i feel like there's so much more i recently have been made aware of the concept of like the two body issue right where like if you and your partner are both in the sciences and it's really hard to get postdocs or faculty positions or whatever in the same place. And so all of those personal relationship things that go into science that I just, I think oftentimes get looked over because people are so, so sort of like laser focused on the, the work.
1: Yeah. I think I, so I I think I'm in a lucky position that I don't have the two body problem just because my current partner does healthcare. Mm. And so he's doing nursing, so he will always have a job. Yeah. Um, But one thing that I think is so interesting, especially for graduate students and probably later as faculty, is I know that my current partner has been like, you have a boundary issue with your work. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of this problem where, you know, for a lot of jobs, when you finish your work and you come home, that's the boundary. But as graduate students, your work is with you when you're home. And it's like, how do you create that boundary? And I think... Yeah, I think that's something I'm still working on. And I think it bleeds so much into imposter syndrome where you're like, oh, if I'm not doing work hundred percent of the time, then I'm not a real graduate student. And it's like, no, you're fine. Yeah. You know, it's like it's so bizarre. It's something that I find really helpful is like if I were my friend, how would I talk to my friend? And like, why am I treating myself differently?
0: Yeah. I think for me, having worked for a few years at a job that was basically, you know, nine to five or whatever, and then I left and that was it, has trained me a little bit to be more of that mentality. And so now I see, I'll see people on Twitter being like, reminder, it's Saturday, you shouldn't be in the lab. And I'll be like, I wasn't planning on being in the lab. Like, now I feel guilty in some ways that I like, am not working all the time but I know that's ridiculous and I need to like maintain my own well-being but it just feels like yeah there's this I don't know the fact that people like talk about the fact that you shouldn't work all the time then makes me feel like I should be working all the time (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I think it's also something that like I that I didn't have the like
1: gap, right. That taught me like, oh, it's okay to have a balance. It's actually good. Yeah. So it's almost like an undergrad thinking where it's like, oh, I stayed up. I had three hours of sleep. Oh, I had one hour of sleep. And it's like, why are we doing this? Like yeah. it's
0: none of it is healthy. So switching gears a little bit. So one of the things I wanted to talk about with you is that you are hard of hearing. And so I'm yeah. wondering if you could tell us a little bit about first, what's, that is like for you and sort of like what that experience is just generally, yeah. um, but then also how that has impacted you in your pursuit of becoming a scientist.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I was born with my hearing loss. Um, so it's bilateral, sensor neural hearing loss, which means that like the science behind it is that I'm missing some hairs. Um, so I can't pick up higher frequencies. Hmm. And so what that means is that um, it took a lot of uh, speech therapy when I was younger to like practice things that I couldn't necessarily hear. Hmm. so, yeah, so I wore hearing aids all throughout elementary school, and then I realized that I was, like, different because I had these hearing aids in, and then they were also an older model because it was, like, the 2000s, and so, like, kids would, like, hold them, and they'd shriek, and I would just be like, I'm over it, I'm done, like, as an elementary school kid, wow. so I stopped wearing them, Yeah, and then I throughout high school and or until high school I didn't really have a problem because I went to small schools and there wasn't a lot of people Hmm. and then I went to Boston University and that was like having a classroom of like 300 people and I like couldn't hear anything and so it was rough and so that was the first time I was like oh I like I need help for this thing because I'm either watching the professor talk, watching what he's writing or understanding what's happening. Mm -hmm. I can't do all three. Mm -hmm. And so I went to the accommodations office Mm -hmm. um, and they were like, oh, you need an upgraded, uh, an updated audiogram. So then I went to go get my audiogram and yeah, it, it was still there. I was still just as deaf as ever. And so then I got cards, which is basically someone who sits next to me Mm -hmm. And so they caption in real time. So that's the cards real time. And so I was really like embarrassed at first to like have someone helping me. And then I was over time, I was like, oh, this is great this is amazing. And then I like felt the shame kind of just like glide off and be like, oh, like this is who I am. And it also helped that Boston university had a deaf studies department where there were like fully deaf faculty on campus. And it just, they were like, no, you're part of the deaf community. You're hard of hearing. This is your life. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. Which made me feel a lot stronger in who I was as a person. Yeah. Um. So how it relates to me as a scientist, I think I Had the hardest time when I was in chemistry classes, and I couldn't hear anything past events. And so the TAs would always get, like, really pissed off that I would be like, can you come here? Can you come closer to me and, like, talk to me right here? Because I'm not going to hear you. And then there were other people. I remember this one time my sophomore year that I really loved, which was someone saying, I don't know how to help you. Can you tell me how? And I thought that was the nicest part because there was a lot of vulnerability in saying that mm-hmm. to be like, I don't know. And I think him saying that actually gave me the room to speak up for myself a little bit mm-hmm. instead of you know, the people trying to kind of awkwardly walk around it. And I think there were also some negative points too. I remembered I, I was a TA myself for another class and we were being peer reviewed by another TA. Mm -hmm. And so one of the TAs wrote as a joke on my evaluation that I shouldn't be a teacher if I can't hear my students. And so that I, it was like shocking to me that someone would say that as a joke. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, And so like other, my other TA stood up for me, but I ended up messaging her just talking about like why that's not okay and then I told our boss and then our boss was like do you want me to fire her and I should have said yes but I said no because like you know you it's just an awkward position to be put in yeah yeah um yeah I think like those were yeah I think that was like the first time I was like whoa that was crazy yeah um but then, you know, after working with James, I think James was also that kind of avenue of like, I don't know how to help you. Mm-hmm. What can I do to support you? And so I think he also was like, this gives you a unique perspective as a scientist. That's mm-hmm. actually really important. And I think that was like a good way for me to view myself, um, which was like, you know, it's not you've overcome these challenges, but more like you make science better. Yeah, um, And so he encouraged me to like, you know, have that framework when I was writing my applications. And I think it helped me a lot. Um, You know, it also really helped when thinking about graduate schools, which was like, you know, picking out an advisor. And like, I think only two people, interestingly, I think the only women I applied to Mm. were the ones that were like, this mattered to me. And I'm interested that you brought it up. Mm. Like talked about it when I was in my interviews about like, for example, Lauren talked about it with me, you know, like I'm excited that like you're interested in science advocacy on science representation, um, which I think, you know, helps me realize like who's going to like give me the space to succeed as a scientist, who's willing to give me the resources to succeed.
0: Yeah. I have so many questions that I just thought of that relate to this. So let me see if I can remember at least some of them. So, okay. First one, do you think that your, the fact that you are hard of hearing has influenced your current science trajectory because now you're studying uh, auditory communication in frogs. Like, did that influence that or was that a coincidence? So I think it
1: definitely piqued my interest in communication.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think it just frogs happened to also call, but it definitely influenced communication in the sense that, like, you know... I think the way humans think about communication is very auditory based, but humans communicate so much visually. Mm -hmm. Um, so for example, there's these videos of babies who are being signed to by their parents. And so they're like better able to understand that at an early age rather than like speech, which is so cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. So signing is actually like a really cool Avenue to think about communication. Um, you know, touch as well. There's also signs for, you know, deaf and blind people where you sign into the hand. And so the touch of where those hand shapes are is actually how humans are communicating. It's just fascinating to think about how many complex avenues people can process information. in. Yeah. Um, so I think for that, like, especially the connection between like parents and their offspring is something that I'm interested in. So I definitely think like just the basis for communication and the fact that like when I was in college doing sign language, I was like, oh, like I can express so much with just my face Mm -hmm. and like just with my signs. And so I think that just taught me that like the way we think about communication is so much broader than just acoustics.
0: Yeah. So one of the other things that I just wanted to talk about in relation to signing is so you have taught our lab quite a bit. I shouldn't say quite a bit, some um, signing. But I think one of the really interesting things that you've told us about is this ongoing endeavor to come up with signs to express science. Um, So if you could just talk about that a little bit, because I just think it's really interesting and cool. Yeah, so...
1: So I, I also want to just clarify that as a hard of hearing person, this is like this is an interesting position that I'm in because I'm kind of part of both worlds, right? Like, so I can present quite easily as someone who's hearing and then like, you know, I sometimes I'm recognized as being like culturally deaf. And so it's just so interesting to be in both worlds. And so part of what this means for science is that there are people in the deaf community who are scientists and are actively working to basically create new science terms. So for example, like, you know, there are, you know, science has a lot of long names, (laughs) And so it's tedious to sign it, fingerspell it every single time. So there's deaf scientists who are like basically working together as a collective to make new signs. And so this is just something that's like so amazing about deaf culture is that, you know, There are so many interesting ways to describe something and then kind of making a collective dictionary for those STEM words is something that's actively happening with, I think, Gallaudet University, RIT. And so it's just super cool. Um, And so, yeah, something that we're trying to do as a lab is, you know, actively, you know, give deaf scientists the space to succeed and so part of what that includes is us hiring deaf high school students from California School for the Deaf in Fremont to come and do research and explore science and so you know this gives us the space to um you know support people who are interested in science and explore college um so that's something that we want to do as well you know it's it's just super cool to think about though that you know the way ASL is used to describe science and the way science is talked about, it's just so creative and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's really helpful when talking when using ASL Mm Psycom.
0: Yeah. So you just started talking a little bit about some of the ways in which you personally in our lab are engaging with scientists who are deaf or hard of hearing. But I'm wondering if you have other things that you think of that are ways that, We as scientists can make our work more accessible, or not even necessarily our work, but also just like science in general, more accessible to those that are deaf or hard of hearing.
1: Yeah. So I think part of what this includes is something that I'm surprised isn't employed more in the Zoom environment, which is just captioning, you know, Mm. seminars and services like that. I think, you know, offering those avenues and then, you know, offering an ASL interpreter if it's requested is something Mm -hmm. that's also great as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and I think, you know, continuing to uplift deaf voices and deaf scientists is something that's also really amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and hearing from them and hearing their journeys in science
0: is really great. Do you have any particular scientists who are deaf in mind that you would like to give a shout out to for people to go check out their work? There's
1: a neuroscience lab at Gallaudet University. Um, There is the Petito lab. They're like the first like neuroscience graduate program that's like supports deaf and hard of hearing students, which is super amazing.
0: Yeah, because when I think about. Our program, Mm -hmm. I guess, do you think it is accessible to those that are deaf or hard of hearing? Like, are there things that we could be doing better? Yeah, I think it's about like,
1: how do we publish events? Like, how do we talk about events? Um, I think something that's also challenging, but I, I think that we're moving in a better direction is like how to ask for accommodations more easily. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we really put students through through a lot yeah. to ask for what they need. Yeah, When I think that we could actively be participating more in that, where it's like, Fa- like for example at Stanford faculty aren't formally trained on like how to work for students with disabilities mm-hmm. other than like the legal logistics of like accessibility related to the ADA. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard, I think. And I think if we made a more active effort for faculty to be trained, yeah, you know, and how to ask questions and how to like approach accommodations would be better. Yeah, um, I think, you know, yeah, I think, most part my graduate school experience has been pretty good except for some minor things which is like how do we also talk about disability Mm. you know you want to talk about that a bit more yeah so this is a bigger issue in itself which is like how do people talk about disabled people Mm. and so i think like this is something that's ongoing which is like do you say disabled or differently able? Do you like, how do you ask people about their disability? Like, do you assume everyone has a disability because there's invisible disabilities? It's, it's hard because I think people are afraid of the word disability. Mm-hmm. People uh, like people feel bad for those who are disabled. Mm. And so I think the best like way to think about this is disability isn't a bad word. And so, you know, disabled people are still people like for example like I know that even in like interactions I've had with people I don't really have a problem disclosing that I'm hard of hearing Mm. and like I don't feel bad for that but then people will tell me that they're so sorry and it's like no it's not a big deal I'm Mm. just hard of hearing it's fine yeah um or then sometimes people will give compliments in ways that are like a little concerning where it's like oh you speak so good though and it's like, yeah, because people who, because I'm punished if I'm not right. Right. Like right. socially it's, it's, it's not good. Right. And I'm also privileged that I like got the training that I did. Some people aren't that privileged. They're still just a deserving of respect. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's just stuff like that, that I think yeah. is like the things that I deal with now where it's like more of like the path, it's not even a passive aggressive. It's like a microaggression where I think it's well-intentioned, but it's, it's it still perpetuates a belief about what disability means. Yeah. And I was born hard of hearing. I've never experienced anything different except, you know, when I put on hearing aids and then I hear the birds singing and then like, you know, I, I hear people, papers shuffling. And then I'm like, Oh, this is annoying.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I was just going to say, is that ever overwhelming? Oh my God. Yes.
1: (laughs) Like I, I, so I got, my boss got me hearing aids so I can do my acoustic research, which is super considerate of her. Yeah. Um. But I do take them out when I'm by myself because like I can't stand that just the random clicking noises and like whatever else is happening in lab that apparently hearing people deal with all the time. <laughs> I can't deal with that. And then I just like take them out. And yeah. then I'm like, oh, everything's peaceful again. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's so bizarre. <laughs> um. But yeah, so it's like everyone people who are hard of hearing and deaf like have this interesting relationship with hearing where like we feel kind of neutral about it. Like, you know, I think this is also just how people who are disabled feel about themselves where it's like, yeah, I might need accommodations. I might need access, but I still love myself. I still think I'm, I am I, have a good life. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that is important because when we talk about outreach with like, you know, communities that like are deaf or, you know, chronically ill or anything like that, it's, we shouldn't feel bad for them. It's like, oh no, science just is not welcoming of people. I think this is like most careers in general. It's like, no, they just need the space to succeed
0: and it's fine. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I think that's the interesting thing. One of the things that I've been thinking about that you have made me aware of, but I've also just been thinking about like more generally recently is the microaggressions in terms of things that I say without thinking about it that are... um, like inappropriate to say with terms around disability, you know, so I feel like it's a common thing for people to be like, oh my God, I'm so deaf. I didn't hear what you said and not think about sort of the impact that that has on people who are deaf. Um, Mm -hmm. so I wonder, I feel like you have introduced me to some phrases and things like that, that are, that I might not have thought about. Um, but yeah, I wonder if you just have any thoughts on sort of microaggressions that the people who are either deaf or just more broadly people who are have various disabilities might encounter that we should try to be more aware of yeah Hmm.
1: I think that I'm so sorry one is usually the one that's like a little bit I think people experience probably the most universally okay um I think assuming anything about like what a person is experiencing it's just like not a good look yeah. because I, I like, for example, for myself, I feel like very neutrally about like my hearing loss. I know it's something I have and I, that's how I live life. And I'm proud to sign and I'm proud to use hearing aids. I'm proud to say, no, I didn't hear you. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I've matured and grown as a person that I'm okay with who I am. Um, I think, you know, I think part of being an advocate is like giving people the space to speak for themselves, which is also something that's important. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this is like beyond disability, which is like, as an ally, I think it's important to ask what you can do and not speak on behalf of people. And so for people with disability, this is also something that I've noticed, which is like, sometimes someone's speaking on my behalf and it's like, no, I can speak for myself. Like, that's fine. You know, I, I think that's something else that's like, Nuanced um, but the oh, you speak so well, it's like it's not good it's it's very because it, it basically means that there's like a level of like what you consider good,
0: right um, and, and then there's, there's an, a level you consider not good yeah, and there's an inherent assumption that just because you are hard of hearing, you're going to speak worse, which is not necessarily true right. yeah, that's something that came up actually in discussions with. Michael, who's my partner, who's Vietnamese, where he says that people will tell him that he like speaks very eloquently. And to me, as like a white person, that's a compliment, right? But for him, he thinks of it as the underlying assumption is that because he is Vietnamese, he won't speak English well and therefore people are impressed that he does speak English well and that just like blew my mind I was like oh my god how many things am I saying to people that are just like wildly offensive that I'm really unaware of and so I feel like that's something that I have been trying to think about a lot recently yeah I think
1: also something that's so interesting is like this is like my internal conflict too because like when I apply for grants it's like I have to disclose this stuff because like you know, it's it's part of who I am, but then I'll be like called things like brave and like, oh, you're like you've overcome so much. And it's it feels almost disingenuous because it's like, oh, it, it's my daily life. Like, you know, right. I'm not on some quest. Like I'm just <laughs> like living my daily life.
0: Yeah, you're not. And so HR, I
1: think yeah. that's a little bit exactly. And I think this kind of leads to like the inspiration porn thing, which is like hard. For example, have you ever seen those videos of like babies getting cochlear implants and then yeah. they like like it's kind of like if I were putting hearing aids in and then I hear like a ton of noise and it's like really like stressful. Yeah. It's like it's hard because it implies that disabled people need fixing. Yeah. Um which is difficult. Um you know it's like I think that's something also people should be cognizant of is like how do we talk about disability? and still allow people to maintain their humanity, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Like, I don't need to be fixed.
0: Yeah. This, I think, goes into a larger topic that, so I took this class um, in college that was about basically the history of mental illness, and we had this really interesting discussion about if we could sort of magically make all mental illness go away, is that good? And we were talking about how many of the world's most creative artists and great thinkers have had some form of mental illness. And like, would their art and would their thinking have been the same if that mental illness were gone? And, you know, and I think it's a similar thing when we yeah. think about disabilities, like people who have different abilities are bringing different things to the table. And so like, I don't think thinking about it in terms of like, oh, this should be fixed is necessarily... I don't know. It's just an interesting sort of thought experiment of like, would this be better or or not? I don't know.
1: Yeah. So I think a way to think about this, too, is that similar conversations happen in bioethics all the time. Right. Where it's like, oh, if we could get rid of like if we found out what causes Down syndrome and we could stop every single like future birth from having it, should we do it? Right. If we found out the gene that makes people hard of hearing and we fixed it, you know, what would happen? And so I think you kind of allude to this, which is that like there's deaf culture though. Right. There's deaf history. Right. And so, you know, Martha's Vineyard was like 50% deaf at one point. Fremont in California has like a huge deaf population and it's generations of deaf people where if you have a deaf baby, that's it's great news. Like, you know, you're gonna sign with your family. And so I think this is kind of like something that we forget about when it comes to disability is that these are people with rich lives and, right. you know, have culture and history. And so I think like when we allow, it, it's so hard because it's part of someone's identity, but it also doesn't define us and we shouldn't be reduced to it. Right. Where it's like, you know, mental illness, for example, in, there's so many like rich things that are part of that person's life. And that person has a unique perspective, kind of with what we we're talking about with art. And it's also like, how do we talk about mental illness? Right. You know, how do we view people who are mentally ill? And so I think this is kind of the movement to talk about like neurodiversity instead of like, you know, how do we frame these things? Are these people like if people are managing, you know, what negatively affects their lives, then what's the harm? Right. You know, Right. So I think this is like something for, uh, you know, when we talk about autism, for example, something that I thought was really interesting. I was talking to a student of mine who identified as autistic and I was like, do you prefer people with autism or do you prefer autistic people? And she was like, if I have to tell you that I'm a person before I'm autistic, I shouldn't be around you. Mm -hmm. I'm an autistic person. That's fine. Yeah. And so that really like helped me get a view of like, It's part of who I am and that's okay. And I have so many perspectives and life experiences that I'm just as important as everybody else. And I think that really helped me too because, you know, as a position, as like an educator at that point, we never like want to exclude students. We're so scared of like messing things up. But I think this is like the benefit of asking questions and being vulnerable because they actually can show you quite a lot about, you know, seeing the humanity and I think this goes into the differently abled versus disabled thing and so like like I remembered I was in a seminar where we were talking about me being disabled and then they were like they were like oh this disabled students up uh, differently abled and I was like oh my god this is so <laughs> yeah by someone in our department and I was like this is uh. and it's hard because it's there's positions of power or whatever, but yeah, it's hard because it's well-intentioned. But I don't, I think what people don't realize is that there's like, by doing it that way, they actually like, you know, add extra meaning, which is like, oh, we have to remind ourselves that we're, they're people. Right. We're saying they're autistic. Or we have to like not say disabled because it's a bad word.
0: Yeah. Okay. So looking back on everything that has brought you to this point, are there certain yeah. lessons about, just like science or I guess any advice or anything that you would want to share with someone who is thinking about pursuing science, whether that person is disabled or just anyone.
1: So one of the best pieces of advice I got from my mentor when I was an undergrad was like, you benefit science, right? And so when you're meeting someone, like, yes, they're interviewing you, but you're also interviewing them to see if you're a good match. And that's so important because you're giving them a service basically. And you know, if they're not going to treat you well, you don't need to be there. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's the important thing. And if you have certain parts of your identity that are going to navigate how you live as a graduate student, if that's disability, if that's race or something like that, it's okay to ask and talk about it. Mm. Um, and I think that actually tells you a lot about how that faculty member is going to respond to you. Right. Like, For example, there was um, someone I knew that was interviewing for a position um, during COVID-19. And one of the questions that he asked was like, how are you supporting your students during COVID? Mm. And that's important. And like, how is that that person gonna respond to that? And so it tells you a lot about who they are, Mm. um, which I think is quite good. I think also it's important to think about what's, you know, how student bodies and schools talk about it too, which is important because like, it's not just important that your PI is supportive. You also need to have like a, you know, a community or like a support system outside of your PI. Mm -hmm. So like, that's something I found in this lab, which is like, it's okay to talk about these things. They're regularly talked about, you know, we're all regularly self-examining ourselves to be like, are we doing the right thing? Mm -hmm. It's important for us. Um, and I have been in some places where I was like, "Oh, I love this PI, but this person is so toxic that I'm not. I don't think I would benefit here." Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that's also really important. I think you know, this is so cliche, but the person over the project mm-hmm. is like tried and true, man. Like yeah, you know. So I think, I think meeting people too before you apply. This is like poor people advice now like meeting the person before you apply tells you a lot about whether you want to apply to that program or not and spend the money. Mm. Like I loved meeting people before. Cause I was like, oh, they rock. I want to apply mm. because it's like, I paid for undergrad by myself. So I didn't have that much money. And I was like, I don't want to like, I don't, I just don't want to waste money on a program, not knowing I'm
0: not going to get in, you know? Okay. This has been such an amazing conversation like thank you so much you have such amazing insight thank you and this has been so wonderful um if people who are listening would like to get in contact with you what is the best way that they could do that
1: yeah you can just reach out to me um at bc Goolsby um on twitter and you can just send me a dm there cool awesome (laughs) thank you so much thank you steph and maggie
0: this is so fun Thanks again to Billy and thanks to you for listening. Billy gave a shout out to some specific deaf scientists, as well as programs with many deaf scientists. And so we've included links to some of those in the show notes. Billy also has a spreadsheet of deaf scientists from all across the country. So if anyone's interested in getting access to this spreadsheet and seeing who all is out there doing research as a deaf scientist and what they're working on, please contact us and we'll gladly share the spreadsheet with you. You can find us at our website, roots rootstostempodcast.com or email us at rootstostempodcast at gmail.com we'd love to get any other feedback as well so please feel free to contact us about anything we'll be back in two weeks with our next guest so stay tuned